1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.
2: Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, October 19th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippians are preparing to take part in a major safety drill involving 23 states this morning. Find out how and why emergency management officials say you should drop, cover, and hold. Then hear from a Mississippi fire chief on state efforts to save lives and homes managing wildfires. And in our book club segment, meet the author of the book Quackers as Mississippians gear up for a celebration of literacy. It's time to read for the record. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. All Mississippians are encouraged to participate in today's Great Southeast U.S. Shakeout earthquake drill. The Mississippi Emergency Management Agency is coordinating the event in the state. It kicks off at 1019 a.m. During the self-led drill, participants will learn the essential steps to take in the event of an earthquake. The three steps are to drop, cover, and hold on. Mississippi is on the outer edge of the New Madrid seismic zone, which saw a series of major earthquakes in the early 1800s, causing catastrophic damage. There are several fault lines that cross the state, which means it's not immune to earthquakes. MEMA officials say it's not a question of if, but when another major earthquake occurs along the New Madrid fault. MEMA Director Lee Smithson tells us about the shakeout in the state. The
3: shakeout exercises for the Central United States, uh, the eight states that fall uh, on the, uh, uh, the New Madrid seismic zone, Uh, earthquake fault, which uh, uh, runs from uh, Arkansas up through the uh, Missouri hill.
2: It's one thing to practice, and we'll get to the details of that, but what should Mississippians know about the threat of earthquakes, if there actually is a threat?
3: Well, that's a very good question, and so many people from Mississippi, you know, say we don't live in California, so we're not subject to earthquakes, but actually the New New Madrid Seismic Zone um, is a a very significant uh, earthquake zone uh, it did last really go off in 1812, but it was an 8.0 earthquake in 1812 that rang church bells in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So, um, if we do have uh, another earthquake, it is going to be very, very significant. And everyone in the uh, in the Mississippi Delta, in the northern part of the state, all the way uh, over through uh, Tate County, uh, over to um, Uh, really through the Corinth area, are are going to be subject to uh, feeling the impacts of an earthquake.
2: So they can actually be that specific, know exactly what counties are involved? Yeah, we've got
3: 19 counties that uh, a a very extensive survey was done in 2010 by the Mid-American Earthquake um, uh, Center that did an in-depth study. And so really, we know that Tunica County will be devastated. Uh, DeSoto County will have a lot of damage, but we'll have damage. Um, just because of the way the soil is composed um, All the way, as I said It's a total of 19 counties Throughout Mississippi That, uh, that would have some type of damage But really uh, DeSoto County uh, Tunica County uh, Down um, to Washington County Can see some, some real damage And really it's not so much the shaking But it's the composition of the soil That will liquefy So it'll turn into uh, really What looks like quicksand So even a one story home that isn't subject to collapsing will still sink into the ground. Roads and bridges will will sink into the ground. So it's uh it could be a very very significant event uh, throughout the uh, northwest part of the state.
2: Well, it sounds cataclysmic. Actually, how can you prepare for that if it would be that horrible in that part of our state? How do you prepare?
3: Well, Karen, I think that the first thing to do is for people to build a kit. And a kit, you know, could be applicable to what you would need after a tornado. What you would need after an ice storm, what you would need after um, an earthquake, and that is plenty of uh, non-perishable food, uh, uh, one gallon of water per person per day, and it could be up to three days before help would arrive, Um, and then have cash in your pocket, uh, plenty of gasoline. Uh, You know, that's the bad thing about an earthquake is they are truly no notice. So we do have advanced warnings of hurricanes, uh, even ice storms and tornadoes that might impact northwest part of the state. But the key is is to always have a a kit that your family uh, can live off of for up to three days until help arrives.
2: The drill today is will actually mimic what you should do during a real earthquake?
3: That's right. So, you know, it's easy to remember that it's on, you know, 1019 at 1019 a.m. uh, And what we want people to do is immediately seek cover uh, stand in a doorway, get under a desk, uh, get outside. Uh, you know, if you're on an upper story building, get into the stairwell and get down uh, to to be able to protect yourself uh, from the effects of the initial earthquake. And then the thing to keep in mind too is, in the aftermath of an earthquake, understand that uh, if you didn't have damage to your building or your home uh, or to your school, it's not good enough just to go back to business as usual because we are going to see uh, more aftershocks and then. The thing to keep in mind is water lines, gas lines, those kind of things are burst. So just to be under, you know, aware of what happens in the aftermath of an earthquake, that it could be very, very dangerous. You can see fires. Uh, you can see, uh, you know, no, no water, uh, that kind of thing. So, and it, this is just to raise awareness really for people in the Northwest part of the state to understand, uh, first of all, how to protect yourself and then how to be able to, um, take care of yourself and your family uh, for a couple, three days after the event.
2: If you took cover inside your home or inside a shelter, when the earthquake is over, should you stay put or can you go outside? I mean, you talked about some of the hazards outside. So should you just stay where you are?
3: Well, I think it's situation dependent, Karen. And I think that that's what everyone and that's why we encourage everyone to think about where they're going to be, you know, at any given time. So whether what you do at school is different than what you do at work is different than what you do at home. So if you're at home, for instance, Uh, and you have no damage to your home there. We still encourage you to go outside as long as there aren't tall buildings around you. Uh, you know, if you look at people who live in the Memphis metropolitan area, uh, you know, so many of those high rise buildings are old brick and mortar. So they need to get out of them and stay out of them. Do not go back in and stay as far away from them as you can because you could have those old brick facades that now begin to fall. So again, it just depends on where you are, but the more. Uh, You know, if you're out in an open area, uh, the safer you are. If you're in a highly uh, urban, congested area, uh, the key is to get out of that area.
2: The drill, again, is at 1019 this morning, is there a significance for 1019? We just did
3: it because it's the 19th of October, so we did 1019, 1019, so it's easy to remember. 10-19.
2: 10:19. So at 10:19 this morning, it, uh, you're going to drop cover and hold on. That's part of the Great Central U.S. Shakeout earthquake drill. We've been speaking with the Executive Director of the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency, Lee Smithson. Thanks so much, Lee. Karen, it's my pleasure. Coretta Green is principal of J.Z. George High School in Carroll County. She tells MPB's Desiree Fraser how her students prepare and participate
4: even though earthquakes are not common in our location, but in case we ever have one, because that could happen one day. We don't know when, but to make sure our students are safe and they know what to do in a situation like that, even if they're not at school, you know, even if they're in another location, they know where where, where the safest place they need to be in order to be protected.
5: I understand that this is the third year that this has been done. Have you participated in the past? Yes. And how does it usually go? What happens? Well, what happens
4: are uh, the students um, they find a, a lot of them pretty much in the classrooms. If they're still in the club, we don't come out of course. They're in the classrooms. We get on the tables, they hold on to table legs. Uh, we have some that get into a room, but majority, if they have desk, they get underneath the desk in case something falls. Or if they're on the table, they get on the table and hold on to the legs of the table.
5: How do you explain this exercise to them?
4: We have monthly meetings here each month in each grade. And so that is basically how we prepare them in advance. Um, every year at the beginning in August when school first starts, we go over safety. And that's, that is when we do it. And we have someone to demonstrate. Well, and we have drills. You know, we have drills, of course, that's practice. But we actually have people, someone to demonstrate in the gym when we have our grade-level meetings.
5: Safety is a major concern for you. Yes, ma'am, it is. What are your major concerns with the idea of even having a mild earthquake at awesome. school? Well, that
4: they're not because I was I experienced one when I was in San Diego many many years ago, and so and it was mild at the time, and so I was able to explain to them what to expect. Even if it's mild, they'll know, you know, how to deal with it because it, everything kind of shakes and there's some things that fall down off of um, tall shells in the room, things like that, and so that they won't be too afraid or too alarmed. They'll know how to recover from it by going to a safe place.
5: Well, Miss Green, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk with us a little bit about this earthquake drill.
2: Okay. You're welcome. Today's ShakeOut is free and open to the public. To take part, individuals and organizations are asked to join the drill by registering to participate at www.shakeout.org. slash Central U.S. Coming up, hear from a Mississippi Fire Chief on state efforts to save lives and homes managing wildfires. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: If you're a sustaining member of MPB Think Radio, we appreciate your support of our programs. To become a sustainer, go to mpbonline.org.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippi firefighters are training with top experts on battling wildfires. With rampant fires destroying parts of California, some Mississippians may have concerns about efforts in the state. The Southern Area Geographic Area Heavy Equipment Operator Academy is coming to a close today at the Southern uh, Southern Regional Fire Training Center. It's the fourth consecutive year of the event which brings together interagency partners to receive consistent heavy equipment training and to improve and standardize the training options available to the wildland firefighting community. The course gives a hands-on seat in the equipment multi-scenario-paced training with individual coaching and guidance. Randy Kelly is incident commander and Mississippi Forestry Commission fire chief. He tells us the kinds of heavy equipment used to fight fires.
6: When you have dry conditions and wind, you can have large fires. And then when you add a terrain to it, you have large, fast-moving fires. You know, that fire jumped, jumped from mountaintop to mountaintop in California, and you're talking half a mile to a mile spot fire. So you got to get way out in front of those fires out there Around here, we do have spot fires, but they're not going to travel from mountaintop to mountaintop. They may travel from ridge to ridge, you know, which would be a quarter mile at the most, a uh, few hundred yards
2: mainly. How many um, fires are there in Mississippi on any given day or week?
6: Last year, we had approximately 2,300 fires that burned a little over 33,000 acres.
2: And you just had an academy where you were teaching people how to operate machinery?
6: That's right. We uh, We pulled all the... Most experienced operators from all the southern states, you know, that's been around for a long time. And uh, they know that they know the right tactics. They know how to maintain this equipment and they know how to safely put a fire out with that, with that equipment. And we bring students in and, uh, and just feel that knowledge. And, you know, and that's the best thing we can do is pass on good tactics and, and the right tactics. That's what we need because this heavy equipment, you know, heavy equipment is dangerous by itself. And then you put fire in the mix, you know, it's exponential.
2: Seems like it'd be a situation for panicking if you yeah, weren't comfortable it, it, with the equipment.
6: Exactly, exactly. You not only have to make the right decision, you've got to make that right decision quick. You know, it's got to be second nature to you.
2: What kind of heavy equipment is used to fight fires?
6: In the southern region, it's, it's mainly uh, tractor plows, which is bulldozer with fire plow on the back.
2: What do you do with those?
6: If you can imagine a bulldozer and it's kind of a coulter blade with two discs on the back, the fire plow cuts a little disc behind the dozer. So we're cutting a little fire lane and we're consuming the fuel to meet the main fire so it slows it down so that main fire doesn't have fuel to burn anymore, and it calms that fire down where we can catch it. You can imagine uh, the lower country out there as being dozer country. The high country, you know, when you get into the slope, you know, over 40%, we can run a dozer up a 70% slope going straight up. But a side slope, we can only put that dozer on a forty percent slope. So you got to be careful on, wh- on where you put these dozers in.
2: I you assume can, you, you couldn't do the the burn back without the wind being in the right direction. Is that right?
6: We'll we'll anchor the fire, and when when I say anchor, we need to tie that fire lane into something that's not going to burn, whether that be a lake, a ditch, a road, uh, or something of that nature. And we'll pull that fire lane in, and we'll start flanking that fire. And you'll you'll run the flank and you' you'll get around the head of the fire and come back down the other side of the fire, which will be the other flank. You know you have the back fire, which is where the fire started, then you have the two flanks, which is both sides of the fire. Then you have the head fire, which is the direction that fire is going. You got to knock that head fire down to catch it. But with these dozers, they're quick with a fire plow, you can go about two miles an hour cutting fire break with a fire plow. Yeah, without that fire plow and just the blade on that dozer, it's about a half a mile an hour. So it's that much faster with a fire plow. We can catch those fires that that much quicker.
2: Are there any large equipment that actually put water on the fire? I mean, we know of fire trucks. Is there anything bigger than that?
6: Forest Service has a ship. We call them ships. It's helicopters with buckets that can drop water on the fire when, when needed. You know, most of the time in Mississippi, we can catch them with our dozers. Um, when we have large, larger fires, we, we may uh, ask for U.S. Forest Service assistance to, to drop water on the headfire. You know, you can use the dozers to fight the fire in the low country. Then, then it's an aerial fight, which is uh, ships, you know, and, and hand-tool crews up in, up in the mountainous part of the country.
2: Can you tell us about uh, a fire in recent memory that was particularly difficult to fight and why it was?
6: Let's say We had a fire in uh, Yazoo County last year. It wasn't a wasn't a real big fire. It was uh, I don't know 100 150 acres or so. But it was in the uh, the tornado damage, you know, from from years ago where the tornado came through Yazoo City, and you you uh you put that tangled mess of timber into the uh, gullies and steep hills of Yazoo City, and it's hard to get equipment around that fire. So we had a hundred plus acre fire you may have to get way off that fire and push a push a fire lane way off the fire to get around it. So what what we're doing is we're drawing a box around that fire. And uh, when we drew that box, we GISed that, and it was uh, a little over 500 acres, the box we drew. But we were lucky the fire didn't run on us, and we were able to, to build road around that fire. It took us all day, but we built road around that fire and kept it at 120 acres. There were 60-plus structures involved, you know. When you talk about structures, you got you got not only us as wildland firefighters, you have structure firefighters, you have uh, the Red Cross out there feeding everybody. You got extended extended incident. We have aircraft over over top of us. You know our spotter plane telling us if we have spot fires and what the fires doing at all times. Um, you know out west, you can put a guy on the next mountain and see the whole fire. Around here, it's hard to do that. You know it's you. You're your own lookout. You got you got to know how to be safe and, and know what that fire doing at all time and. When somebody feels a wind shift, you have to let everybody know immediately because they got to adjust their tactics on the fly.
2: Randy Kelly is the incident commander and Mississippi Forestry Commission fire chief. Thank you so much for some really interesting information today.
6: Thank you.
2: Chief Chia Kelly says Mississippi has four participants in this year's Academy. Coming up in our book club segment, meet the author of the book Quackers as Mississippians gear up for a celebration of literacy. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
0: Your home for the arts and music is MPB Music Radio. From classical to bluegrass and everything in between, MPB Music Radio has a sound for every ear. For information on where to find MPB Music Radio, visit mpbonline.org. This is
2: Mississippi Edition. Mississippi Public Broadcasting is promoting early education readiness by participating in Jumpstart's premier national campaign, Read for the Record, The event mobilizes millions of children and adults to celebrate literacy by participating in the nation's largest shared reading experience. This campaign supports Jumpstart's mission to work toward the day every child in America enters kindergarten prepared to succeed. Throughout this month, MPB has been recruiting volunteers and encouraging Mississippians to pledge to participate in Read for the Record today. This year's featured book is called Quackers. It's written and illustrated. Illustrated by author and artist Liz Wong. In today's book club, she tells us her debut book is about understanding, acceptance, and learning. I would say that it's a book
0: that a lot of people can relate to, in that it's about a cat and a duck, but it's really about being different and finding your place in the world. And although it's not really stated overtly in the book, a lot of people have picked up on that message.
2: What age group is this book for?
0: I would say that the kids who enjoy it most are probably ages three to seven, Um, although some kids who are older and younger have also enjoyed it quite a bit as well.
2: Are you the illustrator for the book as well?
0: I am. I wrote and illustrated the book.
2: Which came first, the illustrations or the text?
0: Well, the idea for the book came when I drew a picture of a cat, and I thought it would be funny if the text said that it was a duck. And then from there, I started to shape the story and wrote out my first draft. And after that, I then started to think about the illustrations and what they would look like. So a little bit of a combination of both.
2: I think we all understand how a book is edited, but are your illustrations edited in a similar fashion?
0: Yeah. You know, I have a, I have an editor and an art director. So when I send them my work, I will send them all of the sketches for all the pages so they can see what it's going to look like in terms of layout. And then I'll also send them a sample finish piece so they can see what I'm thinking. So they they will give me feedback on the illustrations as much as they will give me feedback on the text.
2: As a children's author and illustrator, how do you illustrate and write with a child in mind? Well, I
0: really try to write and illustrate, basically trying to make an entertaining story. Uh, the things that I do keep in mind for children is keeping the language fairly simple, although usually with picture books, adults are reading them with kids, so you can throw some words in there that they might not know. And also I uh, keep in mind the age group as I am thinking about the illustration style. So when I made these characters, I made them look very cute, and they're made out of very simple shapes, which has the additional side benefit of making them really easy to draw, and kids can draw them as well. So when I do school visits, I show them how to draw, and they can draw along with me, which is really a fun activity to do.
2: Tell us a little bit more about the plot. So it's
0: about a cat who thinks he is a duck, Quackers lives at the duck pond with all the other ducks, and he really doesn't know anything other than ducks. And one day, uh, a strange duck shows up who looks just like him, and this strange duck also meows like him. And so he eventually does figure out that he's a cat, and he meets the other cat, and then has to realize that he can be both a cat and a duck. He doesn't have to choose between the two worlds.
2: <laughs> Do you have any background in early education or are you are you strictly just drawn to to children and their perception of things?
0: Yeah, I don't have a background in education. I really came about this because I love to draw and I was one of those kids who was always drawing and by the time I was in first grade I decided I was going to be an artist and I It took me a while to get into children's books because I didn't really realize that was something that regular people did that, you know, I wasn't really sure where books came from. (laughs) I don't know if I thought they were turned out by some company or factory that was making books. But then when I realized that anyone can write children's books and illustrate them, I realized that was really a perfect fit for me because I always loved children's books. So it really grew out of a a deep love of drawing and a love of books. I have discovered uh, since I've been doing school visits that I really love talking to kids, though. They are so eager and excited to participate, and they also love to write and draw, and it's really fun to interact with them.
2: I'm interested to know when the kids are looking at your books, do they see things in your illustrations that you didn't see when you drew them?
0: They definitely find meaning in the book that I didn't realize that they would find. When I was making this book, I was thinking a lot about myself and my own story and the ways that I felt different throughout my life, and I didn't uh, anticipate that they would identify with it in all the different ways that kids can be different. So any situation that they're in where they feel like they don't fit in, They will find themselves in the book, and that's been really meaningful to me.
2: I think it's meaningful to the kids as well, it sounds like. This book is simply called Quackers, and we've been speaking with its author and illustrator, Liz Wong. Liz, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. And to be sure you're counted towards Mississippi's reading record, visit mpbonline.org slash read for the record. I'm Karen Brown. I hope you'll join us tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Edition, only on MPB Think Radio.
1: Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.